Bible reading is Hebrews 12, 18 to 29. You haven't come to a mountain that can be touched. You haven't come to a mountain that is burning with fire. You haven't come to darkness, gloom, and storm. You haven't come to a blast from God's trumpet. You haven't come to a voice speaking to you. When people heard that voice long ago, they begged it not to say anything more to them. What God commanded was too much for them. He said, if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be killed with stones. The sight was terrifying. Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the Jerusalem in heaven. It is the city of the living God. You have come to a joyful gathering of angels. There are thousands and thousands of them. You have come to the church of God's people. God's first and only son is over all things. God's people share in what belongs to his son. Their names are written in heaven. You have come to God. He is the judge of all people. You have come to the spirits of godly people who have been made perfect. You have come to Jesus. He is the go-between of a new covenant. You have come to the sprinkled blood. It promises better things than the blood of Abel. Be sure that you don't say no to the one who speaks. People did not escape when they said no to the one who warned them on earth. And what if we turn from the one who warns us from heaven? How much less will we escape? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Once more I will shake the earth, I will also shake the heavens. The words once more point out that what can be shaken can be taken away. I'm talking about created things. Then what can't be shaken will remain. We are receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken. So let us be thankful. Then we can worship God in a way that pleases him. We will worship him with deep respect and wonder. Our God is like a fire that burns everything up. Powerful passage indeed. Uh, well, happy Mother's Day. Welcome. Uh, it is uh, a very important thing to always listen to your mother. And as we come to a text that focuses on listening, I couldn't think of a better tie-in. So that's what we're going to have to go with today. Uh, my, uh, my father famously told a story to us as kids. He, he had trouble uh, getting out of bed in the morning sometimes. So A, I know where I get it. Uh, but B, I... I vividly remember the story that he told. He said that uh, his, his mother would come and very, very politely come and knock on the door. Uh, you know, it's time to get up, time to get up. And then and she'd come back. And I think it was maybe, maybe the third time back she came with a, with a little glass of water. And she, she took the water and she, she sort of spooned it out and just dropped it just ever so gently on his face, just sort of over and over and over again. And I thought, you know, that's... That's a nice mix of being gentle, but also really making a point. Uh, what was something that, that your, your mother told you that you always have to remember? We, we had this discussion in the family service this morning. Uh, was there something that, that your mother said that was sort of something she was always saying? You know, we heard things like behave or uh, make your bed or uh, I went to so much trouble, you better finish that. <laughs> Uh, uh, what was something that your, that, that your mother uh, was always saying to you? Wise, wise people know how to distinguish between voices. 
And the voice of a parent, the voice of a mother is a, is a very important uh, voice in our lives, but the voice of God is the ultimate voice of authority. And this uh, message that we're coming to from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 30, uh, excuse me, verses 18 to 29 is about, is about voices uh, from the mountain, God's voice coming from the mountain. Uh, I invite you to pray with me as we open God's word together. Father, would you encourage us? Would you strengthen us as we come to the scriptures? May we be fed through your words of life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're in this series through the book of Hebrews, which we've titled Seeing Jesus. And the whole idea is that even though we are not present physically with Jesus right now, we can see him, we can perceive him through faith. And it's through the eyes of faith and beholding Jesus and who he is and what he's done that we will find the strength, find the grace, find the compassion, find the urgency to finish the race that has been set before us. Uh, Pastor Chris last week uh, led us through verses 14 to 17 through uh, this idea that we are called to run as a team. It's kind of the, the end of that instruction from Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, where we are told to fix our eyes on Jesus running the race set before us, just like he ran the race set before him. And we thought about something last week that maybe we don't often think about, but we should, which is that we are crossing the finish line together. We, we are meant to come into the kingdom of God and receive heaven together. This idea that we're not running alone, but we're running as a team and how we relate and act with each other has a great impact upon each other. That we would all be standing before the Lord together. In other words, it's not just my God, but it's our God. So as we come to uh, verses 18 to 29, we're coming to the conclusion, the conclusion of this section. And if we can just sort of press that, that, that racing metaphor one more step, if I can just extend it one more week, uh, this, this is what I think the question is that, that arises from this text. Have we come to the right place? <laughs> Have We set the right course. Are we at the right destination? I mean, it's all well and good to run. It's all well and good to go on a journey. It's all well and good to to exert yourself and and to spend your life, spend your energy pouring yourself out in trust and in obedience to God. But isn't there a part of us that needs to know we're, this is the right, this is, we've got it right. We've come to the right place. Maybe you know people in your life who have set out on the journey of faith and only to come to the conclusion, I don't think this is the right place. This isn't, the, this isn't right for me. This is, this is not, it's not what I want. It's not, it's, it's not what I thought it was going to be. And, and then effectively, in, in telling you that they're, they're not a Christian anymore, they're saying, I don't think this is right. Have we come to the right place? Now, that's an ambiguous question, (laughs) intentionally. But it's a relevant question. It's ambiguous in the sense that 
we're having conversations as a society around this idea of, can anyone really say what's truly the right place? I mean, who are you, pastor, to impose your Christian beliefs on me? Who made you... Who made you qualified to, to talk about matters of eternity and, and matters of existence and, and, and meaning of life? I mean, aren't you just somebody else trying to sell me something? Aren't, aren't you just trying to relieve your own conscience? Aren't you just trying to, to you know, be a quote-unquote good person? How do we know we've come to the right place? You see, if we internalize that question, then we will say something like, well, is this the right place for me? And while God gives everybody the authority to, to in effect, give their own answer, to make that, own, that, that choice for themselves, God allows people to do that and to say that, but, but our perception of what's right for us doesn't necessarily actually alter reality. As many saints have pointed out through the ages, whether it's in times of revival or times of decline, it's not our faith that makes God real. It's not our belief that makes Jesus' work effective. It's not my desire for forgiveness that grants me forgiveness. It's not my It's not my desire for truth that makes truth exist, you see. God stands on his word, and he says, this is what is. And he says he is appointing a day, a day, when any and all doubt will be removed, when all other arguments will be silenced, where there will be no actual room to quibble. You ever been in, in a heated debate with somebody? You know, maybe it's about your favorite footy team or maybe it's about, you, you know, just how to interpret a series of events and you're engaged in this conversation. You said, no, I, the preacher, they said this way. And no, no, they said it was that way. And then eventually somebody comes into the middle of the discussion and they give you the, the relevant information and it's just over. <laughs> and somebody has to say, well, yep, you were right. Sorry. <laughs> At least if they're a person of integrity. <laughs> Sometimes they just walk away. Oh, okay. (laughs) Have we come to the right place? The big idea this morning is that God is speaking to us from heaven. God is speaking to us from heaven. Now, that's either something you will believe or something you will not believe. It is something that is either true or it is not true. But the the testimony of the scriptures is that this is in effect what is happening with the gospel. That God is decreeing, he's speaking from heaven. Now throughout the scriptures you find this argument that God speaks through creation. You know, Psalm 8 is majestic in in its description of, of the stars and the planets sort of pouring forth speech, declaring the wonder and the glory of God. But there is more speaking that God is doing. In fact, this whole book of Hebrews, you could argue, is is a reflection, a meditation, an encouragement, if you will, on the fact that God has spoken through Jesus. 
You recall the first words of this letter or of this address. In various times and in various ways, God has spoken to us in the past through the prophets. But now, in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. You see, this whole book is about the fact that God speaks. The whole exposition on Melchizedek is about the fact that God swore an oath to Jesus telling him what kind of priest he would be. He would be a king priest, a forever priest. And so to the church, the fact is that God is speaking to us from heaven. Now, the simple truth is if God is really speaking, we better listen. Am I wrong? If, if the divine creator of all things is addressing you, is addressing me, is addressing all human beings anywhere, the, the one element, the, the one thing in all God's creation that, that has this capacity for, for consciousness, this, this, this reflection, this meditation, not just simple animal instinct, but if God is addressing us as thinking, reasoning individuals, are we not to listen? By way of overview, We're going to see in this text that Hebrews brings together themes of warning and blessing. If if you felt a bit like you're on a roller coaster in this book, and 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 sort of on one side you're getting thrown into this into this warning space, watch out, watch out, don't do this, watch out, and then you go around another corner, you're thrown into this other side, and it's the side of look at how great the salvation is, look what Jesus has done for you, And, and you sort of feel like you're bouncing back and forth and back and forth. Well. That's not surprising because that's in effect what this whole letter is doing. But here, here they are brought into the same picture. Those those two poles, if you will, that have been held in tension this whole time are brought centrally together. And so here... The exhortation about the presence or absence of faith, it will determine whether we experience fear or whether we experience joy in light of God's final word. Is the word of God to us going to give us, is it going to make us anxious? Is it going to make us afraid? Is it going to terrorize us? Or is it going to give us joy? And there's two mountains pictured here. And you're going to see a distinction between God's voice from Sinai and and God's voice from Zion, God's voice from earth and God's voice from heaven. Oops, can we go back? There we go. So here, the speaker is bringing his appeal to faith, which began all the way back in 1039, this whole section. He's bringing it to a conclusion. And the goal of all of this is to assure these people that even though, even though they need to continue in the journey, even though they need to keep going in the race, even though if they reject, if they reject the spirit, if they reject the word of Christ, if they don't hold on to it, even though they would fall away, He's confident that they won't. He's confident that they are people of faith. And so his goal in this section is to give them assurance. Now, there's some concepts in this passage that we need to get our heads around real quick. The first is Sinai. 
Mount Sinai was a, was a mountain in the wilderness. It's the mountain where God came down and God spoke with Moses and God gave the 10 words or the 10 commandments to Moses. And it was in effect, God meeting and consolidating with his liberated people into a covenant. You see, he brought them out of Egypt. He redeemed them from their their slavery, from their bondage, from the persecution of Pharaoh, who would not let them go. And he liberated them that they might go into the wilderness and worship God and be a people who were dedicated to his purposes. And they arrive at Sinai and Moses goes up to the mountain and it's on that mountain that he receives the 10 words and a whole host of other commands of the Lord. And the other mountain here is Mount Zion. Now Mount Zion is in Jerusalem. When King David was about seven years into his kingship, he, he, he went and he captured the city of Jerusalem from the people called the Jebusites. And, and in capturing the city, he decided to move the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And from there, from that place, the, the, his son Solomon would then build a temple there. And so the, the hills, the, the mountain of Jerusalem there became synonymous Excuse me, Zion became synonymous with Jerusalem, with the temple, with the presence of God, and with the city of David. So Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, Mount Zion where God dwells in his holiness. And the last thing that we need to think about, the key concept here is refusing. And, and it's, it doesn't maybe jump off the page to you here, but, but what the author is going to be pulling out is, is how when the people were at Mount Sinai, they they asked God to stop speaking to them. They said, please don't speak to us anymore. Speak to Moses. It was so terrifying. It was so horrifying. And the author's going to pick up this idea of them refusing to want to hear God. And he's going to say, we better make sure that we don't adopt that same stance. Well, here's our outline this morning. This passage is going to call us to uh, the assembly of God's people. That's what the voice is. He said God is speaking to us from heaven. What's he saying? He's saying you're invited. Come on in. Come into my kingdom. Come into my banquet. Come and join the assembly of my people. That's what God is saying. And this passage is going to call us into that assembly through appeals to the senses, specifically the eyes, the ears, and to touch. So if you're a sensory person, and this, this is a message for you. This text is full of sensory images, okay? And so the outline really comes in sort of three steps. The first, we're going to have the vision. Second, the voices. And thirdly, the visitation. The vision, the voices, and the visitation. The vision simply presented in verses 18 as well as verse 22 is that they have arrived, Follow with me. Verse 18, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion. So immediately, before we get into what's happening on these mountains, before we understand the contrast between these two places, immediately we're we're told you've arrived. And he's going to say, you haven't arrived in this place, and you have arrived in this place. 
Christian, have you thought for a moment that you've arrived? Most of us think in language, no, we haven't arrived yet. We're not there yet. I haven't arrived as a person. I'm not all who God wants me to be. No, I haven't arrived, Pastor. And I haven't arrived in heaven yet. Please tell me this is not heaven. I haven't arrived yet. But, but yet in the gospel, spiritually, you've arrived. Spiritually, you're, you're here. You're in. Paul would say to the church in Ephesus, he would say, you have been blessed, past tense, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. The whole lot is yours. You've arrived. You're in. You've found Christ. What else are we looking for? Is that your sense? When, 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 you, when you think about your soul and you think about your spirit and you, and you think about your relationship with God, do you, have this, do you have this sense that I've closed? I've closed with Christ. I am his and he is mine. And this is where I've arrived. I don't know how many of you like, like words, <laughs> uh, but I, I get fascinated by words. You, some of you are numbers people. I'm a words guy. And, and uh, I learned something this week. I learned that the word proselyte, you've probably heard the word proselyte before. It's often in legislation, you know, proselyte. You can't proselytize. You can't, you can't, you can't try to convert anybody. The word proselyte is actually right, it's right from this text. The, a proselyte is someone who has come. Someone who's arrived. And so what the world says to us when they say, you can't proselytize anyone, they're saying, you can't take anyone out of this path and bring them in to the kingdom of God. To say you can't proselytize is, you have to let people keep going on their merry way. You cannot get involved. You can't, you, you can't say you're going the wrong way. You can't say the road is wide and you're headed for destruction. You can't say the doorway is Jesus. You can't say there's salvation in him. You can't tell somebody, hey, convert to Christ and your name will be written in heaven. You can't say that. But that's what a proselyte is. Someone who has arrived. Someone who's converted, someone who has come. And the writer is saying, he's saying, hey, church, church, you church that's feeling a bit complacent, you church that's feeling a bit tired, church that's, that's sort of looking around at the world and thinking, is it really worth all this that I have to put up with for the name of Jesus? Ah, oh, it's so hard. Oh, oh. And he's saying, what are you doing? You're in. You've been qualified to inherit the, the eternal kingdom with, with Christ himself. You're a co-heir. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is yours. You say, you've arrived. You're here. You know, I suspect that the reason most of us don't evangelize, maybe as much as we think we should, <laughs> the reason we don't evangelize that much is because this, this idea is lost on us. We actually are, we're wondering in the back of our minds, is this really the right place? I've knocked on this door that says Jesus and, and, I've, and I've gone in, but is this really where, is, are there other rooms? Is there a party going on down the hall that I'm missing? 
And so we poke our head out the door. Oh. Well, I guess I could open the door and invite some people in, but I don't know. Maybe they want to go down there. (laughs) The vision here is you've arrived, but it sets up a contrast between these two mountains. And while you could say this is a text about two mountains, it's really a text about two voices. Not just two voices, multiple voices, but what's, what's being heard on one mountain versus what's being heard on the next mountain. So, so the vision is you've arrived. The, the next part that we need to consider and, and the meat of this image is, is in the contrast of these two mountains and what's being heard on one mountain, what's being heard on the other. So let's go through it. Verses 18 to 22, uh, excuse me, 18 to 21 describe what's happening on Mount Sinai. And remember, he says, this is, not, this is not where you've arrived. You're not at Mount Sinai. So everything I say here, that's not where the Christian is, okay? And he's gonna say in verses 22 to 24, this is where you are as a Christian, All right? So where are we not? You have not come to a mountain that can be touched. It doesn't even say mountain. Literally to something that can be touched, that is burning with fire. You've not come to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. You see, by now, anyone who's familiar with the Exodus story would realize, oh, we're talking about Mount Sinai. We're talking about the Old Covenant. Now, what you need to know in the comparison of these, of these two mountains is each has seven descriptions. Each has seven things. The first two on Mount Sinai are visual. Something that can be touched, oh sorry, not visual, are, are, are sensory with your hands. You've not come to something that it can be touched or something that is burning with fire. The next three are visual. To darkness, to gloom, and storm. And the next two are audible. To a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. That's that idea of refusing that we were talking about. So here's Mount Sinai. First of all, it's on earth. You could, you could go to Mount Sinai. You could go to Mount Sinai today. It's an earthly mountain. Note what he's saying. You've not come to an earthly mountain. It's an earthly mountain, but more than that, it is a mountain that's on fire. But with the fire does not come light, only heat. Because on that mountain, is, it's covered in darkness. And, and the sense of darkness continues as these images escalate from darkness to gloom, which might be described as this sort of foreboding sense. Uh, have you ever, you ever been in a place so dark that you felt like you could feel it? Like, just, just, just feel the darkness here. That's the sense of what Sinai was. And to a storm, to a tempest, to, to a cloud. And from there they heard a voice. 
Now the voice said, even, if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. So here's the picture. There's a mountain that is covered in a dark cloud. There's fire on the mountain. And a voice speaks to everyone who's at the foot of the mountain. And the voice says, don't let anything touch this mountain. If even an animal sets foot on the, on the mountain, you need to kill it. You need to destroy it. Notice how. It must be stoned to death. They weren't even allowed to touch the animal. They had to kill the animal from afar. It's a picture, as Gareth Cockrell would, would suggest, it's a picture of inapproachability. Sinai was not a place to find access to God. Notice his name isn't even mentioned. God's name is absent. Even the mountain's name is not even mentioned officially. We only know this because, we only know it's Sinai because the words are almost verbatim from two different places in Exodus and Deuteronomy describing this same event. But the idea is that no one can go, no one can approach. And what he's saying to the church is, you haven't come to a place where God is distant, unapproachable, and so holy that if you even get within reach of him, you'll be obliterated by the sheer force of his holiness. You haven't come to a place that you can physically touch where God is obscured by his holiness where all you see are, are, are in effect, <laughs> I, don't know if this, I don't know if this is gonna make sense to you, but, but when the holiness of God meets a world tainted with sin, the, the natural phenomena that, that occur show that the created order cannot abide a holy God. And so the fire and the smoke and the darkness and the cloud and all of this, it's the things that the creation is, is throwing up because it cannot it cannot abide the presence of a holy God. So this place of darkness and burning and fire, the voice can be heard absolutely, but the voice was so terrifying, they, 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 they said, stop. You haven't arrived there. Now, I think in some ways we get this and in some ways we don't. You see, in some ways we get this because, because we tell people, you know, God loves you, and he does. We tell people, you can pray to God where you're at, and you know what, you can. The Bible says he's near to us. But in some ways, we don't get it because I don't know if we can appreciate what it means for a God who, when he shows up, it does this how can a God like that be near to me? How can he indwell me through his Holy Spirit? You see, in some ways we get it, in some ways we don't. And so often what we do, because we, we fail to be able to accommodate an understanding of God and the fullness of his glory and of his holiness, what we do is we sort of domesticate him. We shrink him down. And, and it's kind of like, 
you know, you end up with this sort of flannel graph Jesus that's, that's just as, just big enough to deal with your problems, but he's also safe enough that you don't get scared at opening your mouth to pray to him. And so we're sort of constantly in this sort of push and pull. Do I like, do I make Jesus bigger? Do I have to make him smaller? Do, and, and, and we're sort of like, how do I get God into a, a shrink wrap size that I, can, that I can deal with him? Well, Sinai says, you can't. So where have we arrived? Note the differences here. Again, seven, seven different factors. But you have come to Mount Zion. Now, note, Sinai didn't even have a description. It wasn't even named. It was literally a thing that can be touched. Here, Mount Zion, it's named, the place is named, and it gets a threefold description. You've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Okay. This is not a place where God merely appeared once. This is where God dwells. This is the place where he inhabits with his people. There's a society here. There's, there's a kingdom here. Do you realize that when you became a Christian, you joined a community? That you joined a city? You joined a nation. You joined something that's not just about you. It's not just about me. We were having a meeting earlier this week as we were preparing for for our next series. Our next series, by the way, we're just gonna be looking at this question, what is the church? We're gonna start that in June. But as we were discussing this series with some of our worship leaders and Emily Johnson, our worship coordinator, we were saying, you know, one of the things we got to get across to people is that the church doesn't exist for me. The church exists for God. It's a society of his people. It's a place where he has fellowship and relationship with the righteous, where he brings his glory and his joy and all of that. And this is what happens. He said, you, you haven't come to that unapproachable place. You've actually come to, to where God really is. And this is why the voice comes from heaven. It's a heavenly Jerusalem. It's not the city in Israel. It's a heavenly city. You've come to a heavenly city. Where else? You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Here's a little tidbit. When you read through the Bible and you see angels, if you find them in sort of ones or twos, they're usually dealing with people. If you find them in thousands and hundreds and and myriads of angels, it's because God's there. They are surrounding him, serving him, praising him, worshiping him. Notice, they are in joyful assembly. Heaven is a happy place. It's a place of abiding and everlasting joy. Now, I don't know what it was about painters and those, you know, back in the Renaissance period in the Middle Ages, why, why they had to paint heaven as sort of fat babies with harps and clouds, I don't know. Maybe that was joy to them. 
for whatever reason, we find it boring. Heaven's not going to be boring. It's a place of ecstatic excitement. There's a celebration going on. So you've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels. You've come to the church, the assembly. Those words are interchangeable. Church, the assembly of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. Now, firstborn is not singular there. It's plural. It's, (laughs) you might say, the firstborns. You've come to the church of the firstborns. Now, we're firstborns because of the true firstborn son, Jesus himself. Note the contrast with last week's message. You had Esau, who was the firstborn, but he gave up his firstborn rights and privileges for a a pot of porridge. And he's been condemned for it ever since. But we are not those. You see, we've been enrolled in heaven. Jesus would say to the disciples when he sent them out to cast out demons and they came back and they come back and they're all excited because they have real spiritual power here on earth. Jesus says, don't rejoice because of that. Rejoice that you've been enrolled in the citizenship records of heaven. That's why you should have joy. We're the assembly of the firstborn in heaven You have come to God, the judge of all. Now here, it says you've come (laughs) to a judge. If I could translate it woodenly. You've come to a judge, the God of all. What's a judge doing in the midst of this picture of joy and celebration? It's kind of putting a damper on it, isn't it? We got a judge here? Well, a judge is discomforting if you're not righteous. If you haven't been forgiven, if your sin hasn't been atoned for. But a judge also is someone who establishes peace and order. And so the idea here is you've come to God who is presiding. This state of, this, this tussle between rebellion and obedience, this, this going back and forth between, our, our, is God's creation going to serve him or is God's creation going to rebel against him? It's It's not. That question isn't there anymore. And if you think about all of the wrongs perpetuated by human beings, how often are the victims crying out for justice if only somebody would, would, would stand in and would, would preside over this situation? God will always be presiding in heaven and on earth. That's why this is a window of time right now that's unique to human history. It's not always going to be this way. Close with Christ now. Repent and turn now. Because when the judge sets himself up and and when Christ returns and he puts, and all things have been put under his feet, there's no time for choice then. It's, you've already made your choice. So they come to a judge, but lest we become too concerned, look what else we've come to. We've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And here, most likely, what's pictured is the saints who have gone before. You recall in Hebrews chapter 11, all these people who lived by faith and God testified to their faith. 
And he said, they pleased me, but they weren't righteous. You see, they were waiting for Jesus to come so that they could be made perfect. Now that Jesus has come, all these saints who've gone before, the Abrahams and the Moseses and, 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 and all the, and the Davids and all these people who loved God and lived for him by faith, all these people are now complete. They are perfect because of Christ. And even those who've gone after since, those who are not living anymore, our brothers and sisters who have, as Paul would say, fallen asleep, they are perfect now with Christ. Their bodies are not theirs yet. Their resurrection has yet to happen, but they are complete with Christ. You've come to this assembly. You've come to this cloud of witnesses and notice next, you've come to Jesus. You've come to this one. He's there. And if all the rest has been overwhelming, he's there. You've come to him. And he's described here as the mediator of a new covenant. You see, he is there presiding over the terms of this new arrangement that we have with God. So that, lastly, the seventh description, we've come to, to blood. <laughs> we've come to blood. It's blood that has been sprinkled. That means it's blood that's been applied. But notice what the blood is doing here. The blood, too, is speaking. The blood is speaking a message. And all we're told is it's a message better than the blood of Abel. You say, oh, this is a bit confusing. Abel was Cain's brother who was murdered, who was murdered, who was persecuted. You might call, say the first martyr. He was persecuted for his worship of God. And, and Abel's blood, when God approached Cain, he told Cain, he said, your brother, where is he? He said, am I my brother's keeper? And God said, his blood cries out from the ground. God said, I hear what his blood is saying. His blood is calling for vengeance. His blood is calling for justice. The blood of Jesus speaks a better message than that. You say, is there a better message than vengeance and a better message than judgment? Yes, absolutely. It's a message of forgiveness. It's a message of peace and rest restoration, reconciliation with God. You've come to the sprinkled blood, and that's what it is saying. The, the blood of Jesus applied, shed on the cross, but, but, but poured out for humanity, applied to us, applied to the saints who are now made perfect, the spirits of the, of the righteous who've gone before. The applied blood is speaking to you, is speaking to me. It's saying, you can have real forgiveness. You can be reconciled to God. That's where we've arrived. Not this inapproachable firestorm, this, this, this big, terrifying display, but we've come to heaven itself, to where God dwells in joy and in glory and in forgiveness and in justice. That's where we've come. And so now the author turns quite quickly in verses 35, 25, to 28, he turns quickly and he says, see to it that you do not refuse him. 
You see, if you've come there and, and, and then you turn around, why would you turn around? Why would, you, why would you dismiss that message? See that you do not refuse him who speaks. And then he's going to introduce two lesser to greater arguments. If, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, now he's going back to Sinai. If the people at Sinai couldn't get away with ignoring God when he spoke to them on earth, how much less will we get away with ignoring God or refusing his speech if we turn away from him when he warns us from heaven? In other words, if the voice of God is abiding on earth and you, are have to, you and I are accountable to it, why should we think it's not abiding to us when he speaks to us from heaven? Which is what the gospel is. At that time, his voice shook the earth. Again, Sinai shaking, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. That's from Haggai. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. As commentators have rightly noted, there's, there's three time periods happening here. There's a reference to the past, what God has said in the past. There's a reference in the present, and there's a reference to the future. The reference to the past is God said to Haggai the prophet, there will come a day when he will shake the heavens and the earth. He spoke that in the present. That's a promise to us, and it's a promise of a future reality that's going to happen. And so the conclusion, the purpose of all of this is that God is going to do away, he's going to do with, he's going to do away with the created things that cannot abide. And so all that will remain is his kingdom. And now our two pictures, our warning and our encouragement are coming together. Because Christian, the moment your hope is consummated when Christ comes and the kingdom of God is established, that moment is your transition into the glorious age of eternity. That is the same moment. That is the same moment of destruction and of perishing for those who refused him. The stakes could not be any higher. hear what the word is saying to us. Therefore, verse 28, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and here's our application, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. God's going to speak once more. He's speaking to the world now through the gospel, but he's going to speak once more. And at that time when he announces his arrival, the visitation of his kingdom, that voice is going to shake everything and only, only that which belongs to the kingdom of God will remain. And so now the writer says to us, if we're going to receive that kingdom, if we're getting this unshakable kingdom, what, what should we do? The first thing we should do is we should be grateful. 
We should have gratitude. I'll tell you, your understanding of the gospel is indicated by the depth of your gratitude. That's what, that's what happens in the disciple. Think of Jesus with the sinful woman at her feet and Simon the Pharisee said, if he knew, if he knew who was wiping his feet, he would tell her to go away. Jesus said, no. You see, she loves much because she's forgiven much. If you understand the holiness of God and you understand the access that's on offer, you understand being welcomed in the eternal kingdom, you know what that'll do to your heart? You will become a grateful person. You'll respond to God with gratitude. Not to say you'll never have a trial, not to say that... Not to say that things are gonna be easy, they're not. Not to say you have to like the things that are hard. You don't have to like those things, but deep beneath all of that, in your heart of hearts, there's this response to God that says, God, thank you. Thank you. That you would welcome me. That you would receive me. After what I've done. Knowing who I am. Knowing what I can't do. Knowing my limitations and my inferiority, knowing all these things, God, that you would send your son to die for me, it ought to prompt that gratitude. That's what will grip your heart. And out of gratitude then comes service, and those things have to come in that order. If you serve before you have gratitude, watch out because you might be like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. You might be trying to earn God's favor and he's saying, my favor cannot be bought. My favor cannot be merited, it cannot be earned. It can be given and I have given it to you. But if you try to serve God before you have gratitude to God, you will become a bitter soul. Never outserve your gratitude to God. And the final motivation, the last motivation that's given in this text is a reverent fear. I serve, I worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Why? Because I know my God is a consuming fire. He is holy. And in his holiness, To be in union with him means I must be holy. If I am not, that will be consumed. Paul would tell people like myself, he would tell ministers of the gospel, and this is in 1 Corinthians chapter three, he would say, watch how you build the church of God. He says, if you build with precious materials, they will they will last, they will remain. He says to the, to the minister, to the, go, to the coworker, the gospel worker, he said, if you build with hay, straw, and stubble, he's telling church leaders, people, people who are called to serve the church of God, he says, if that's how you build Christ's church, if you fill Christ's church with a bunch of hay and stubble on the day of God's visitation, you might escape but all that work will get burned up. Windsor District Baptist Church. (laughs) 
I speak for our eldership, I speak for our leadership, and all our staff when I say this. We have no interest in being a church of stubble and straw. I'd rather have a church with five precious stones than a church with 500 or 5,000 bales of hay. Because our God is a consuming fire. And that ought to be a check in our spirit as well because in my flesh, undoubtedly, I'm going to come to these times and I'm going to come to these decisions where I'm going to say, I don't know if it's worth it, God. I like what's happening two, three doors down. I want to get out of this room. But if I've understood God rightly and I reverence him with holy fear and I know he's a consuming fire, not because he relishes in destruction. He doesn't relish in destruction. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but that's who he is. He is a consuming fire. And he will lick up all the dross. He will burn up all the stubble. And I know that. And so, rather than telling God to take a hike, I say, God, here I am at your feet again. Change me, mold me, refine me. Do your work. Chip away all the things that are wrong. And let that faith, which is more precious than gold, that precious thing in me, let that faith be refined Don't push it away. Gratitude, service, reverence, in that order. That's how you'll know that you are hearing the voice of God with faith. If you don't have those things, I want to say to you, you're not hearing God with faith. Beware, because you may be hearing them, but you hearing him, but but you might not be believing him. Let's pray. God, would you continue your refining work in us? Lord, would you bless bless your people, strengthen them. Lord, your refining process is painful sometimes, but I'm mindful that you discipline those that you've called into your family as your children. And so, Lord, as our loving Father, we say, thank you to you. We want to we bless you, God, and we want to thank you for all that you've done for us. We celebrate with joy with the angels and all the saints who've gone before, Lord. We just revel in your majesty and your goodness. But Lord, spare us. Spare us in this waiting time. Lord, from our own folly and our own deception. Lord, where our souls are being tormented, we pray you would apply your peace. Lord, where our minds are being led astray into falsehood, we pray you break the power of those lies. Father, when the wounds and the trauma of things inflicted upon us are are limiting us, are, are like burdens on our back, keeping us from getting up again, Lord, would you take those burdens, Jesus, so we can just walk with you. We ask these things in your mercy and in Jesus' name, amen.